When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Charles Villiers Stanford was first and foremost an Irishman, and like so many of his countrymen, he was a mess of contradictions. So said Plunkett Green, the famous baritone and lifelong friend of the composer. He made his home in England and was a staunch unionist, but all those years of residence could never change his Irish vision or dim the colour of his brogue. He came as a breath of fresh air and swept away much of the dust and cobwebs gathered on English music. Yet he was a die-hard conservative and rooted in the customs and traditions of his childhood. I have known him hold up a family dinner for a considerable time while he boned a herring in the way his granduncle had shown him when he was six years old. The herring was stone cold by the time he was ready for it, but that made no difference. Jonathan handed it that way, and the rest of us were obscurantists and ostriches. Stanford's mother was Mary Hen of Paradise, County Galway, daughter of a family who had been prominent in law for generations. Her uncle, the herring boner, defended Dan O'Connell. Her father, William, was a master in chancery, a fine musician and a good shot. He used to go and shoot snipe in the fields which bordered on what is now Marion Square. The Stanfords also favoured the legal calling, and Charles' father, John, was a well-known lawyer and examiner in the Dublin Court of Chancery. He was also a really fine singer, who could easily have made an international reputation for himself, a first-class cellist and a very talented actor. Charles' background then was pretty well ideal for a sensitive, gifted boy. Although he found his father a trifle overwhelming, he was attached to both parents, and he was encouraged to contribute his might to any talk or music-making that was going on. There was plenty of both, as the Stanfords had a wide circle of friends among an exceptionally brilliant generation. As a boy, Charles was evidently a bit of a charmer, and he remained one until the day he died. The obituary writer in the Times said of him, that his quick, acquisitive mind, readiness of tongue, appreciation of a good story and the power of telling it well, his ability to charm and his love of a fight were qualities which endeared him to his friends and never left him in want of an enemy. With no apparent irony, the writer adds the comment that he was every inch an Irishman. Percival Graves, now 92, echoes this conclusion. Stanford was a godson of my grandfather, the Protestant Bishop Graves of Limerick and Ardfert, and the last Irish bishop to sit in the House of Lords. First and foremost, Stanford was an Irishman, tall, just over six foot, dark and dour. Behind a formidable exterior, he had a gentle old-world manner, he was very short-sighted and a mass of contradictions. Vanity Fair caricatured him as a very tall man with his long legs apart, displaying with evident enjoyment a new pair of spats, which Robert Louis Stevenson described as those odious little gaiters. After the day's work, Stanford's playful good humour was well known. He would explode with laughter 
as a typically Irish story, he had a southern Irish brogue, not to be confused with the Dublin intonation. In his boyhood, Stanford and his father came on a visit to us at Limerick, at the palace, my grandfather's official residence. They were holding a charade party in a charade called the IOU Indians. My father, Alfred Percival Graves, made his first collaboration with Stanford, who furnished the music. With regard to Father O'Flynn, according to generally accepted opinion, the completed song sold like wildfire. No, whereas such was not the case. My informant, and who should know better, is Leslie Booty. <coughs> he assured me that so far from the song being a very bestseller, it only just paid its way. One has only to look at the song to conclude, in my opinion, that Stanford's arrangement of the melody at the top of the Cork Road was a most unworthy performance by a composer who was already climbing to the top of the tree. And the first person who ever sang that immortal masterpiece was myself standing on a rickety nursery chair at West Hay, Kingston St. Mary, near Taunton, from which I fell down and broke my nose. That's why I'm so good-looking today. Well, was Stanford's treatment of At the Top of the Cork Road an unworthy performance? Here's Gerald Duffy singing it, accompanied by Linda Byrne. Charm and variety, far and known for learning and piety. Still, I'll advance you without impropriety. Father O'Flynn is the flower of them all. Here's a hell to you, Father O'Flynn. Slint and slint and slint again. Powerful as preacher and tender as teacher and kindly as creature in old and Talk of your Protestant fellows of Trinity, famous forever at Greek and Latinity, dead in the devils and all in divinity, Father O'Flynn and make heirs of them all. Come, I'll venture to give you me word, never the likes of his logic was heard. Down from mythology into theology, throth and conchology, if be the call. Here's a hell to you, Father O'Flynn, slint and slint and slint again. Powerful as preacher and tender as teacher and kindly as creature in old and equal. Oh, Father O'Flynn, you've a wonderful way with you. All our sinners are wishful to pray with you. All the young children are wild for to play with you. You've such a way with you, Father of Eek. Still, for all your so gentle soul, Cadge of your flock and the grandest control, checking the crazy ones, coaxing our lazy ones, lifting the lazy ones on with a stick. Here's a hell to your father, O'Flynn, slint and slint and slint again. Powerful as preacher and tender as teacher and kindly as creature and old and equal. 
It can't be said that the accompaniment of that song is particularly memorable, but at least it's not pretentious. He managed a trotting accompaniment to trotting to the fair rather better. It's sung here on an old recording made by Plunkett Green. Trotting to the fair, me and Mama only seek did I declare on the single pony. How am I to know that Molly's safe behind without hitching all that awkward, awkward way? By her gentle breathing, whispered past my ear, and her white arms breathing over of me. Thus on Dublin's back, I discoursed that all until upon our track, I slept a mongrel snarling. Oh, says man, I frightened, frightened, let the pony start, and her little hand she tightened, tightened round me happy heart, till I asked her, may I steal a kiss or so, when me Molly's grey eye didn't answer no. Perhaps again an arrangement verging on the obvious, but Plunkett Green held that the secrets of folk song setting are enhancement of rhythm and economy of material, by which criteria Stanford is certainly successful. He maintained that the tunes were sacred, and his sparing accompaniments do focus attention on the melody. He never forgave Thomas Moore for what he called his unjustifiable and even destructive alterations, and indeed he carefully restored the melodies of many of Moore's songs to their original state providing them with apt accompaniments. Herbert Hughes' daughter, Angela, relates an incident when Stanford remarked that Irish folk music was just a lot of peasants singing out of tune, a remark which was taken seriously, no doubt much to the glee of Stanford, who was certainly trailing his coat. In a lecture he gave in 1889 on music in elementary schools to the managers of London board schools, he says that what should be taught is... National music, folk music the music which from the earliest times has grown up amongst the people. Without the foundation of such music, no healthy taste can be fostered in the population. From all times it has been the germ from which great composers have come. The British Isles have the greatest and most varied storehouse of national music in existence. The English, strong, solid and straightforward. The Welsh, full of dash and go. The Scotch, a mixture of humorous and poetic, full of strongly marked rhythms. The Irish, which to my mind, speaking as impartially as an Irishman can, is the most remarkable literature of folk music in the world. There is no emotion with which it does not deal successfully, and none has more power of pathos or of fire. The music of his country was always important to him, and to some extent coloured his own work most successfully when the influence was unconscious. This is evident in the fine sonata for clarinet and piano, which has a notable middle movement, a cleaner, which for all its satisfying shape gives the impression of deep, spontaneous feeling.
Brian and Michael O'Rourke playing the slow movement of Stanford's clarinet and piano sonata, which is counted among his best chamber works, along with the piano quintet, the second cello sonata and the first string trio. When Stanford was more consciously Irish, as in his opera, Seamus O'Brien, the result was less satisfactory. Although it can be argued that stage Irishry is not as far removed from the truth as we would like it to be, the element of caricature makes us uncomfortable, and this element is present in Seamus. Stanford himself must have been aware of this, because although the opera was well received in England, he had doubts as to its reception in his own country. However, the work proved a great success over here, perhaps less for musical reasons than from simple satisfaction that Mike the Informer gets his comeuppance in the end, and from the performance of the famous Joseph O'Mara in the part. The story was based on a poem by Lefanu, and Stanford also set Lefanu's Padre Crohor for chorus and orchestra, which likewise proved popular, though certain choral societies refused to perform it because of the impropriety of the words. The composer was both exasperated and amused, since, as he pointed out, the poem is recited even by parsons at penny church readings. No exception was taken, especially by male choral societies boasting a useful solo baritone to his settings of Henry Newbolt's Songs of the Sea. These were first performed at the 1904 Leeds Festival and are in the English tradition that Stanford spoke of, strong, solid and straightforward. They also have an honest sentiment, a breezy vitality which smelled of the sea, and a sort of seafaring confidence which went down very well with what was then one of the greatest maritime nations in the world. Here is the robust tribute to the old superb, sung by Peter Dawson, born the son of a sailor in Australia in 1882, and who became famous singing songs such as this. The wind was rising easterly, the morning sky was blue, the streets before us open wide and free. We looked towards the Admiral, where high the Peter flew, and all our hearts were dancing like the sea. The French are gone to Martinique with four and twenty sail, the old superb is old and tall and slow. But the French are gone to Martinique, and Nelson's on the trail, and where he goes, the old superb must go. So westward hope for Trinidad, and eastward hope for Spain, and ship ahoy a hundred times a day. Round the world of need be, and round the world again, with a leave dark lagging, lagging all the way. The old superb was barnacled cold and green as grass below. Her sticks were only fit for stirring grog. The pride of all her midshipmen was silent long ago, and long ago they ceased to heave the log. Four year out from home she was a ne'er a week in port, and nothing save the guns aboard her pride. But Captain Keatsy knew the game and swore to share the spot, for he never yet came in too late to fight. So westward hold for Trinidad, and eastward hold for Spain, and ship ahoy a hundred times a day. Round the world if need be, and round the world again, with a lame duck lagging, lagging all away. Now up 
the lads, the cap and gripe are sure the case were hard. If longest out were first to fall behind. Aloft, aloft, we're standing, says, and lash them on the yard. For ninth and day, the brave that drive me blind. So all day long and all day long behind the fleet we crept, and how we fretted none but Nelson guest. But every night the old superbly sell went at the slip till we ran the trains to earth with all the rest. Such extrovert music scarcely occupied the mind of the young Stanford as he wended his way to the Dublin school run by Mr. Henry Tilney Bassett, who seems to have been an actor monkey and an inspired, if very strict, teacher of classics. He was more likely wondering if he would remember his verbs, if he would need to put his new skill at fisticuffs to the test, or if his top hat was smart enough to satisfy Mr. Bassett. But his studies were by no means confined to the classics, and by the time he was 18, he had acquired a considerable technique on the piano and organ and had demonstrated a definite talent for composition. Robert Prescott Stewart, organist of Christchurch, encouraged him greatly, and it was obvious when his school days were over that music was to be his way of life. His father insisted that he should first take a degree, so Charles went to Cambridge and read classics in the time left over from his activities as choral scholar of Queen's, later organist of Trinity, and reformer of the Cambridge University Musical Society. Though he was to be firmly against votes for women, at Cambridge he campaigned for permission for women to join the society, especially as this exclusion gravely restricted the works which could be performed by the choir. With customary energy he launched himself into battle and eventually won. Women were admitted, the choir expanded, and the society flourished. At the organ, he astonished listeners by playing the overture to the master singers, and he became an enduring admirer of Wagner, especially of that opera. In his very helpful treatise on musical composition, he says that Hans Sachs' comments to Walter in the third act could not contain better advice for developing a melody. He carries out these precepts in his own early setting of Keats' poem La Belle Dame Sans Merci, where unison and repetition establish an almost hypnotic effect, broken by the song's climax as the horror and loneliness are realized with full force.
Janet Baker, accompanied by Gerald Moore. Plunkett Green says of this song... It must have been during his time as a student at Cambridge that Stanford wrote the original sketch of La Belle dans Saint-Merci. He told me that this had been lost and that he had forgotten all about it. Some ten years later he came across the poem again and set it on the spot. One day the original manuscript turned up and he found that the two versions were practically identical. The music had remained tucked away in a corner of his brain. 
He orchestrated it for me presently, and sketched on the outside of the score as a dedication enclosed in the dilapidated remains of a top hat. He had sat on mine at a concert. That two versions of the same song, ten years apart, should be almost identical, is an instance of Stanford's early maturity. His music, varied though it is, seems to maintain an even standard throughout his life. He himself felt that his time of study at Leipzig was of little use to him, and that the only valuable instruction he received was from Kiel at Berlin, where he went for a few months at the instigation of his great friend Joachim. But Leipzig was not without its compensations. He found the Gewandhaus Orchestra admirable, though its programmes were ultra-conservative and the atmosphere in the hall stifling. More exciting concerts were given by the Euterpe Society, and the opera was first-rate, the wide repertoire being very helpful to the student. Besides operas, there were cycles of Schiller, Goethe and Shakespeare, with incidental music by Beethoven and Mendelssohn. His seat would generally cost him three shillings, though he could sometimes get one for 18 pence. Apart from these excitements, life in Leipzig was somewhat austere. He describes it in an issue of the Royal College of Music magazine. Our rooms were bare enough, and it was only after great and repeated importunity that we permanently installed the morning tub. The basins were about double the size of a breakfast saucer. The hot water jug held about a tumblerful. We used to have an unspeakable dinner for tenpence. We struck in my second year and launched into comparative luxury at a hotel for one and sixpence. At this hotel I sat day after day for weeks, next Robert Franz, but I had no talk with him, unfortunately, for he was stone deaf. Of walks there were plenty in the afternoon in the picturesque woods which surround Leipzig. We had chocolate for threepence, opera at seven, and supper another eighteen pence after, so a little cash went a long way. Stanford's love of opera lasted throughout his life, even surviving the stresses and strains of the production or non-production of his own works. Seamus O'Brien was something of a success, but the Canterbury Tales and the Critic had a mixed reception, and the Travelling Companion, possibly his best opera, was not staged until after his death. The story is based on a Hans Andersen tale about a princess who sets a riddle for would-be suitors, and when they cannot answer correctly, she has them killed. Something the same idea as Puccini's Turandot, but very different in treatment, and with two very different aspects to the tale. One is that the princess is only half hard-hearted and is quite delighted when the hero, John, guesses her secret, and the other is that John is helped in his task by his travelling companion. This companion, though John doesn't know it, is the soul of a dead man whose debts he paid. Here is the beginning of Act Three when John and the travelling companion are outside the princess's window the night before John must answer the riddle. Stanford admirably evokes the stillness of the night, John's emotion, and the dignified strength of his travelling companion.
and Austin Gaffney with the RTE Light Orchestra, conducted by Amor O'Brien, in an excerpt from The Travelling Companion. It was while Stanford was still at Leipzig, an absorbing opera, that he was asked at a party to accompany a young English singer, one Miss Jenny Wetton. Plunkett Green tells us... He started Du bist wie eine Blume, and she pulled him up short, telling him he was playing it much too fast. He meekly obeyed her orders and began it again at her pace. Later he remarked he had met an impertinent minx. Soon afterwards, the minx and Charles were engaged. Stanford's father was highly annoyed and could only be persuaded to consent to the marriage if the two young people spent a year without seeing each other or writing to each other. Jenny was a very spirited young lady, full of fun as well as of talent. But for Charles' sake, she agreed, and a separate year passed. They were married in England in April 1878, with Joachim among the guests. Two months later, they went to Dublin to meet Charles' parents, and as soon as John Stanford set eyes on Jenny, he capitulated. But with a typical Stanford reaction, Charles' friend Raoul de Versant, who had helped to bring about the marriage, was given the cold shoulder. By the 1880s, Stanford was established as an executant, conductor, and composer. But relations with Cambridge, even though he was elected Professor of Music in 1887 and remained one till his death, were strained because of his reforming impatience. 
Edward Dent said in 1934 that he knew that the immense respect in which the university's Department of Music was now held was all due to Stanford's struggles of long ago. In 1883, he found another outlet for his energies when he joined the first board of professors at the newly opened Royal College of Music. Pretty well every English composer of note was to pass through his hands during his 40-odd years of teaching. Here is what one of the most distinguished of them, the late John Ireland, had to say about Stanford and his methods. I knew Stanford, for I was a pupil of his from 1897 to 1901. He was then about 45, and at the height of his powers. To look at, he was tall and loosely built. He had a commanding presence and an alert, challenging face, which generally wore an expression of humour tinged with irony quickly warming to kindly, quizzical interests. At my first lesson, after looking over the manuscripts I had brought, he turned to me and said, All Brahms and water, me boy, and more water than Brahms. After a pause, study some Dvorak for a bit and bring me something that isn't like Brahms. I followed his instructions and wrote him, as time went on, two sets of piano variations and a sextet in four movements for clarinet, hall and string quartet. Stanford had this tried over. It sounded well. And when I occasionally look at the score, I feel rather a nostalgic affection for the old piece. But the master was not satisfied. He said, the last movement isn't organic, my boy. After one or two further tentative experiments on me, he said one day, I shall have to try another way with you, me boy, but you'll find it a hard one. He then started me on an exhaustive study of the modes and modal counterpoint based on Palestrina. He kept me at this for a whole year, not allowing me to write a bar of music even secretly except in this strict style. Stern discipline indeed, but I have since had every reason to bless him for it. I believe I was the first pupil to whom he applied this modal treatment to generate in such a drastic way. As to orchestration, Stanford's plan with me was to let me find out by hearing my mistakes, however glaring. He would let one's score progress week by week with practically no comment. When it was finished, he would say, now, my boy, go home and copy out the parts and we'll try it over. In due course, one's piece was tried over by the orchestra. One stood beside Stanford on the rostrum while he conducted it. When the more or less appalling sounds had subsided, the master would close the score, hand it to one with a grin, and say, Well, me boy, you see it won't do. You'll have to find some other way. That was that. And one just had to find some other way. Such at any rate was my experience. I think his real success as a teacher came from his masterful personality that we came in contact with week in, week out. A personality which seemed to implant in one's subconscious his own unswerving conviction that only the best would do and that nothing slipshod or equivocal could pass muster. Contemporaries of mine in Stanford's class were Holst, Vaughan Williams, George Dyson, Frank Bridge, Rutland Bowden, to mention only a few at random. Before my time were Charles Wood, Hurlstone, Walford Davis, and Coleridge Taylor. 
After me came Herbert Howells, Gordon Jacob, Arthur Bliss, Moran, and Eugene Goosens. An incomplete list, but surely a remarkable testimony to Stanford as a teacher. After John Ireland, another distinguished pupil, Gordon Jacob. Dr. Jacob also went through the modal mill, which Stanford rightly felt taught purity of sound. Most of us, reared at the keyboard, are used to hearing every note except the octave slightly out of tune. Venetia O'Sullivan visited Dr. Jacob and asked him a few questions. Well, I, he was very helpful, um, technically, and I think one learnt a lot of musical craftsmanship from him without knowing exactly how, but somehow, after being with him for some time, one found greater facility and uh, more means of expressing oneself, technical means, than one had before. He uh, was very keen on purity of style and wanted his pupils to found their style on the pure scale, that is to say the scientific scale, rather than the one that is normally used in music, the equal temperament. In his criticisms, he would, of course, uh, show main, the main principles which he thought should be applied to writing music in general. Economy of notes, for instance, economy of instruments, economy of everything. And he was very fond of using the expression of letting the daylight in and having windows in your music, which were rests. He had studied in Germany himself yeah. with Karl Radeke and other people, and of course had absorbed the German style. Yeah. So he wrote German music with sometimes an Irish accent. Is that what you feel could sum up his own work? Yes, yes. Not a very strong personality in his music then? Well, that was the funny part because he, he was a very strong personality in himself, but I think he felt uh, the weight on his shoulders of the great masters and what they would approve uh, of and all that sort of thing so much that it rather inhibited him from expressing himself as freely as he might. Though he was very poetical and his Irish rhapsodies and his settings of uh, Irish melodies and his vocal settings things like the bluebird and so on. Yes, That's a marvellous little song, poem yeah. in music. It is. And he really had had it in him all right. He had genius, but it was rather inhibited by um, having studied perhaps with too strict masters. How was his relationship with his pupils? Was he kindly with them, or was he very? You say he was a bit of a disciplinarian. Was he very strict? He was very strict, and uh, he spoke his mind. If he didn't like something, he didn't mind saying so. 
and uh, but he had uh, an Irish sense of humour, and uh, there was I must tell you one story uh, about a pupil who was very devoted to him, and he always used to wait until it was time for Stanford to go home, and he'd walk home to uh, with Stanford. He lived in Portman Square then. And one day when they were walking home, he had been giving this student a lesson and uh, had said, had been rather critical about what he'd brought to him that week. And they happened to pass an undertaker's shop and, he, and Stanford said to him, you better take it in there, my boy. <laughs> that seems a little unkind. <laughs> and there were certain pupils that he got on extremely well with, and they were on really friendly terms. And uh, he was a very likable man, really. I always enjoyed my lessons with him, and very rarely had any rough words from him. Occasionally uh, there would be a few, but they were well deserved, I think. I've forgotten um, about reading Vixen. Uh, yeah, uh, next, the next time I saw him, he'd be very friendly. And, uh, on one occasion, when he'd been rather outspoken, more outspoken than usual, he actually, when I went in, he got up out of his chair and came and shook hands with me and um, made me feel that everything was forgotten. But, so he was a generous, good man, I think. A kind and generous man. Mr. F.C.J. Swanton, whose recent death was a sad loss, especially to church music, also entertained warm memories of Stanford. Mr. Swanton, you met Sir Charles Stanford uh, just before his death. Yes, I, I had the good fortune to be introduced to him. And, in, and I was in London, I think it was 1923, I met him at his house. He received me most kindly and he arranged for me to go to the Royal College of Music and play for Sir Walter Parrott, who was then the leading professor in of the organ in London, organist St George's Windsor. And I was in, asked to lunch with the professors of the Royal College of Music. Sir Hugh Allen was there then, and Sir Walter Parrott. And then Sir Walter Parrott asked me to walk to, to Paddington with them going to Windsor. Stanford encouraged you in your... Then I saw him again yeah. the next year. And what was he? Did he speak to you about music? Or about yes, he did, life? and about asked about Dr. Houston and St. Patrick's, and that he was a very good, fine musician. And he arranged one of his Latin motets for St. Patrick's Cathedral to English words. Chalus ascended hardie. This was specially for. Specially for Dr. Houston, yes, and they sing that there still every year. I read in several books that he's rather a, he was rather a touchy, rather slightly difficult person to get on with, but you did not find Vaughan Williams says that he was typically Irish, I think, and uh, um, <laughs> sarcastic, or, but he was never so to me, but... Um, Is it and then, of course, he said all his lovely pupils were, had, had gone mad. Vaughan Williams, John Ireland, and all those that had gone completely mad. I think that the present trend 
is to play nothing as far as organists go to play nothing between the Baroque time and the extreme modern. And I think on that account, Stanford is rather neglected and some of his works have gone out of print. And I think the organ works are well worth playing. And of course, everybody performs his choral writing. And the cathedrals preserve his service music, which is the main spring of Anglican church music still, I think. Yes. His TD, written it about nearly a hundred years ago, in B-flat, has served as an example for composers ever since, and it's still sung just as much as it ever was. Mr. Slonton was not well enough to record some of Stanford's organ music for us, but here is the toccata from the Fantasia and Toccata he mentioned, played by William Watson at the organ of St. Anne's Church, Dawson Street. Although Stanford found he couldn't stomach some of his pupils' work, he was always prepared to help them to obtain performances. And Plunkett Green remarks, I have heard him again and again lament the unhealthy mud ponds from which his ugly ducklings quacked at him, but in his heart he was proud of them. He would pull their legs as well. Once he announced on the Royal College Notice Board that the first half of the afternoon's orchestral practice was to be devoted to the works of Strauss. Richard Strauss was at that time supposed to be the last word in modernism, and all the young bloods turned up to a man, and were entertained with the Blue Danube and other masterpieces of the immortal Johann. For Stanford, Richard Strauss's music wasn't worth listening to after Don Juan. 
Indeed, he was more or less a disgrace to his profession. Another instance of the young radical becoming an old conservative. But he never shut the door on a composer, and never imposed his views upon his students. Provided the pupil knew his musical grammar, he would help him to say what he wanted. Stanford knew his musical grammar, and what he wanted to say was often, as Dr. Jacob said, poetic and moving. The RTE singers, conducted by Hans Waldemar Rosen, sing his beautiful setting of Mary Coleridge's poem, The Bluebird. The lake lay blue below the hill. O'er it as I looked, there flew across the waters, cold and still, a bird whose wings were palest blue. Any composer could be proud of that song. And it seems hard that with such qualities of skill and imagination, Stanford's music should be so neglected. His musical personality was not especially distinctive, of course. There are echoes of Brahms, of Wojak, of Wagner, of Verdi. But his Irish vision saved him from pale imitation. 
and his work contains much that may be minor, but is also masterly. Words were his magic carpet, said Plunkett Green, and his genius showed most fully in vocal music. It might be opera, grave or gay, solo songs, choral pieces, sacred music, the mood rollicking or reflective. But Stanford always responded imaginatively to the words. When his friend Parry died, he said, The only memorial a composer wants is that his works should be published, performed, and so live after him. We may honour Stanford for his devotion to the cause of music. We may warm to his humour and generosity. But we should remember him as he wished to be remembered. By his music. <laughs> 